0: You can open your Bibles again to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in that passage uh, for this talk, and it's going to be a gospel service talk. Now on the sheet it says gospel service, and if you're new you might be wondering what that is. It's quite an archaic word, it's Greek, it means good news. And you might be thinking, well I'd expect you to turn to the gospel of Matthew or of Mark or of Luke or of John. Uh, But we're going to turn to this passage in Romans now one of my friends once described it, he was a non-Christian, he described this as the most negative passage he's ever read in the Bible, because of what we read in Rome, between Romans 3.10 and 3.18. But we're going to look at it today because I believe it's got good news for us. It's nothing new, it's nothing different, there's going to be no insights. It's just looking through how this Bible, how this passage in the Bible explains to us about the good news that we have. So we're looking at Romans chapter 3 verse 9 to 26. And I want to start off by asking a question. It's a question that I think a lot of people are asking. I've heard a lot of people around the country on UBM teams ask me it. And they ask it in different forms and different shades, but it's more or less the same. It's what happens to the good, let's say, Buddhist? What happens to the good Buddhist? See, a lot of people know that as Christians, we believe that it's only because of Jesus that we're going to heaven. It's only because of what he's done for us. So the question that a lot of people ask is well, what happens to the good person who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't believe in Jesus? What happens to the good Buddhist? Only the other month, I was walking through the library in Liverpool Uni, uh, and I tend to, I tend to like, I like chatting to people. And as I was walking in, I was looking for a couple of friends to talk to before I started working. Uh, I looked down the first few rows, couldn't see anyone. It's in the part of the library where you can talk to people, so don't worry about that. But I met at the back, Harvey. Now, Harvey's a mate of mine. He's not a Christian, he's an agnostic, that's not his real name. He's an agnostic, uh, he's also a Marxist, uh, he's also, uh, he holds to quite a lot of philosophical like views, he likes talking about philosophy, he's a philosophy student. And I, I generally enjoy chatting to Harvey and getting to know him a bit better. And I was chatting to him on this day, and he asked me a question, he's reading his Bible, he's, reading the, uh, he's actually starting at Revelations to reading backwards, but he's reading the Bible we gave him. And Harvey asked me the question, Chris, what happens to the good agnostic? Which is obviously a big question for him, because he'd regard himself as good. He'd regard himself as agnostic, so he wants to know what happens to the good agnostic. And we opened up this passage and we went straight to this passage. Because I believe this passage is the answer to that question. Now the reason why I think this question is so common, uh, why so many people are asking what happens to the good Marxist, the good Buddhist, the good agnostic is because there's a common lie that a lot of us have bought and a lot of people have bought around this country. See, a lot of us around this country generally believe that everybody we meet today will be good. When we walk down the streets, everyone we pass is generally a good person. Everyone we bump into or the friends that we have, they're good. We generally believe that. You know, maybe there are some bad people. Maybe Hitler was bad. He's in a special category of evil over there. Maybe... There are a few more bad people, but they're all in jail. We'll never meet them. Everybody we meet is good. And that's kind of what we get told as we walk around. We get told that as a baby's born, it's a good thing. Now, babies are good things. They're a gift from, gifts from God. But we believe, oh, they're good, they're pure, they're innocent. But that's actually a relatively recent belief. And as we, uh, as we look into this, I want to challenge that idea, the idea that bad people are simply good people with unfortunate upbringings. Because I don't believe that's in the Bible. And as we look at this passage here today, I don't think it could be any clearer that the Bible doesn't support this idea that all the people we're meeting are good. And it doesn't support the idea that we're good. So, this passage here today, uh, what Paul's doing between verse 10 and verse 18, the negative part that Harvey talked about, Paul here is listing off eight different passages from around the Bible. And he's collected all eight of these together so that he can say, there is none righteous, no, not one. So that he can say, there's none who does good, no, not one. He's, he's saying to us today, and he's saying to the people there, that actually, as we walk around society, as we look at all people, and as we view ourselves, actually, we're not good. If I just read out verse 10 to verse uh, 12 again, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. How much clearer can Paul make it for us? He's constantly repeating himself. Somebody once told me twice is a coincidence. Three times is definite. In the Bible, if it's there, it's definite anyway. But this is eight times in three verses, in two sentences. Paul says there's none who does good. I know it's not just Paul with this view. If we turn to Jesus and what he says in... uh, Matthew 19 in Mark 10 in Luke 18, somebody turns round to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus' response straight away is, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. See, Jesus didn't believe in good people either. Jesus is quite clearly saying here that if you're calling me good, you must be calling me God. Because there is no one who does good but God. So the the repeated passage, the repeated point in this Bible that we read together as Christians is that actually none of us are good. And that undercuts our basic view of the world that we often hear from the media, that we often hear from different people around us. And I think it goes further than that as well. In verse 9, it talks here about how Paul has charged previously both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. And that's big for us. as A lot of us probably were brought up in Christian homes or were brought up in homes that taught the Bible at least. Because here he's talking about how both Jews and Greeks, so those brought up under the Scriptures and those brought up without the Scriptures, both of them are in the same boat here. They're not good. They're under sin, as this passage is talking. And that includes me and yourself as well. Now, I remember uh, on the doors there on Mondays, we were going out inviting people. I was paired up with Pete Corrie. He's not here. Uh, He went away to Spain. Uh, But Pete Corrie said... Uh, to a Muslim man who we were talking to. The Muslim man remarked as we were about to leave his door, but we all serve the same God, really. And Pete Corrie turned round and said to him, uh, no, we don't. Christianity... Well, he said, Christianity is unique. And he talked about Christianity being unique, and I don't know how you'd bring that conversation on, what you'd start to talk about there, to explain how Christianity is unique. But Pete immediately said, Christianity is unique but it says that me and you are bad. And that it says that only God is good, and how we've fallen so badly short of his standards. And you know, that is the truth that Christianity is unique in that claim. It talks about us as bad people, which is a sad thing to say. It doesn't sound like good news at the moment, maybe this talk, but it's a true thing. And it talks about us as actually being separated from God as a result, of how we deserve punishment as a result of all the wrong things that we've done. That's a big claim, it's a big claim to make upon society. But if we look into our lives, we find that that's true. Because there's not a person of us among, in this entire room who'd say they're perfect. We all know that we've done wrong things. We all know, have secrets that we keep. We all have things that we're ashamed of. Uh, we all know deep down that we've got things that we're ashamed of that we wouldn't tell our parents, that we wouldn't tell our partners, our siblings or our kids. And the reason why is because we know that our actions are bad. And I think that shows us, and it does show us, that actually we too are bad, we too are sinful as people. Uh, I remember somebody once saying, the evangelist, he lives in Wigan, and he once pointed out something about me and about him. He talks about how both of us had things in common, and he listed four things. Both of us, both of us had mouths that had said things they shouldn't have said. I wonder whether that's the same for you today. Both of us had eyes that had seen things that we shouldn't have seen. I wonder whether that's the same for you. Both of us had had fists that had hit people as kids. Both of us had had feet that had walked places they shouldn't have gone. And I think that goes for every person that he met that he said that to. And it goes for me, and I imagine it goes for you as well. So you see, this addresses the question that Harvey asked me. It addresses the question, well, what happens to the good Buddhist? What happens to the good agnostic? Because quite clearly from the Bible, the good agnostic, the good Buddhist, etc., they don't exist. Because the Bible's quite clear in that it says that there is no, no one who does good, no not one. And it's not just that. It's also the good Protestant and the good Baptist and those brought up in those homes too. Because the Bible's quite clear in how it describes us as humans. So me, you and humanity then are in the same boat. The person raised in the Muslim family, the person raised in the Buddhist, the Jewish, the atheist, even the Christian raised family are all in the same boat. And that we're guilty before God by ourselves. We're guilty before God, and worse than that, one day the judge is coming back. Which leaves us with a question. When he returns, if we're guilty, we're in trouble. That's obvious. So our question is, how can we be right with God? And that's what this rest of this passage here is going to describe, it's going to talk about. That's where we're going to get onto our good news. But firstly, verse 19 to 20 deals with one way that a lot of society are trying to be right with God. And it doesn't work. And it's talking about it here in verse 19 to 20. talks about how a lot of people are trying to get right with God by the law. Now, the law, as we read through the Old Testament, what is it? It's a list of commands that we read. And we read of some negative commands. We know the Ten Commandments. We probably learned them as kids. Uh, not all of them are negative, actually, but quite a few are. And it's things that we shouldn't do. And then we read through other things, such as honour your parents, things otherwise, such as um, giving tithes. Positive commands, so don't do this and do this. And you see, there's a lot of laws in different religions around the world that basically say, don't do this, do this. And that will make you get to heaven. If you give enough to a certain organisation, if you don't do certain things, if you do follow certain practices, that will make you right for heaven. That's what a lot of groups say. As a geographer, I'm into numbers, I'm into stats. Uh, There are 7.7 billion people on this planet today, of which 5.8 billion are in religions that are basically saying that to them. They're saying, don't do this, do that, give, give us a certain amount of money or time or etc., and then you may get to heaven. I've met countless of them around the beaches and around uh, the towns in Britain and Ireland as well, uh, and they all have the same story. I'd like to share two of them with you today. So one uh, was a group of Muslims down in Bournemouth, this was. Now, they grew up in Qatar and in Oman, and they came over here to learn English. When they come over, we play volleyball with them, and we get talking to them. And they tell me that there's five pillars. And if you follow these five pillars, you'll get to heaven. And they're honourable things. They're things that we would respect. Giving to charity. Uh, Praying five times a day. Okay, it's to to Allah, but they pray five times a day. Uh, Creeds, saying certain beliefs. Ramadan, fasting. And also uh, Mecca as well. And they follow these five pillars. They say that they've done these five pillars. And you ask them, are you sure of heaven? That's what you said you need to do to get to heaven. Are you sure of heaven? And they'll turn around to you and they'll say, no, I'm not sure of heaven. And if we talk about the Catholics in Ireland, where my own family's from, they have lists as well. Get baptised, do your seven sacraments, uh, give money to the church, go to um, religious islands, spend time there, abstain from certain things that are pleasurable. And that will get you to heaven. But you know when you ask them again, when I ask my own family in certain cases, are you going to heaven? They'll say, we don't know. But they've done everything that they've been told to do for that. They've ticked all the boxes and yet they're no surer of heaven. There's loads of different honourable things that religions are telling us to do. And a lot of people, those uh, billions of people that we talked about earlier, they keep piling on more and more honourable things in the hope that will get them into heaven. They spend their life's endeavour trying to get right with God by doing more, by doing more. And they pile on more and more honourable things. But the sad situation is that for a load of those religious people around the world, they start off unsure of heaven. They spend their life doing all these commands, following all these rules, and they end up still unsure of heaven. Nothing's changed. And it doesn't matter how many more honourable things they pile on, because ultimately what they've done is they fail to deal with the real issue. They fail to deal with their sin and their guilt before God. If anything, all these honourable things have done is given them a distraction. And that's what verse 19 talks about here. Verse 19 and 20 are on about the law. And they talk here about how before the law, every mouth will be stopped. And that's a true thing. One day when we stand before God, there's this idea of how all the mouths will be stopped. It gives me this idea of how, um, how often when you blame a child for something, maybe if they've done something wrong, they'll try and excuse themselves their mouth cannot be stopped they'll try and say all the ways that they've all the good things they've done all the excuses they have but before the law of god actually we have no excuses we have no amount of honorable things that we can bring and just as these jews uh, had been following the law had been carefully following it as well that couldn't ever make them right with god that wasn't enough and before the law actually they'd stand with their mouth stopped harder than that in verse 20 it goes on to talk about actually in verse 19 at the end it talks about how they be- will become guilty before God we talked about before how the judge is coming back and when he does this passage says that despite them having followed the laws despite them having followed all the religious rules actually they'll still be there guilty before God verse 20 couldn't say verse 20 couldn't say it any clearer it goes on to say therefore by the deeds of the flesh uh, deeds of the law no flesh will be justified Justifies is a big word uh, it means to be declared innocent. It's a legal word. So, if you were in a Roman law court and there was somebody who'd done, been accused, if they were made, if they were found to be innocent, they would be justified. They would be declared innocent, and that would be their sentence. They would be innocent. Similarly, here the law can never do that for us. The law can never get away from get get our guilt away. Can never get rid of our guilt. And I. Uh, I wonder how it feels if we turn that a bit closer to home, because it's one thing to look outside the church uh, and to think about how they are following laws, they're following specific commands. But often, I think around the world, we can follow, um, we as evangelical Christians uh, have many people uh, amongst our congregations who often follow the same sort of ideas. They'll follow ideas of brownie points before God, trying to tick certain boxes and live in certain ways that look respectable, Uh, There are probably millions of people around the world in evangelical churches who will be trying to live respectable lives, trying to follow uh, the examples they see around them in the churches next to them. And as they look at the people either side of them, they'll probably see joy in those people that they don't have. Because they're trying to follow religious laws, but they're following uh, laws that can never justify them. Because that's not what the Bible is claiming. It does give us commands to follow. It gives us commands that we enjoy following. But it never says that they will save us. It never says that they will justify us. And I wonder how many people... My dad actually uh, called me up the other, the other week. And he was talking about a specific conference. Uh, and I was saying how I wouldn't be going to this conference and etc. He'd been asking me about it. Uh, and he said, don't go there Chris. Because they're background Christians. Uh, they're Christians who merely have been brought up in a, backgr- in a Christian background. Their dad's the trustee, or etc. And they've learned the Bible from a young age, but actually they don't know what it means. Now, he's not a born again Christian, but he could say there were these background Christians around. I wonder how many of us uh, would fall into a similar boat where we're trying to get our quiet times right. We're trying to spend long enough in evangelism. We're trying to earn up these brownie points, spend long enough in prayer. Uh, do various things, become a church member, get baptised. But you know, actually, those things will never make us right with God. That's not what the Bible claims. And that puts us in no better position than those other billion people around the world. Because that's not what the Bible is claiming, and that's not the good news that the Bible has. And now we're going to look at actually what it is. Because in verse 21, it talks about, "...but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed." talks about a new type of righteousness a righteousness uh, that's being shown to us that's not from the law and this righteousness it talks about it being witnessed by the law and the prophets see this book that we hold in our hands today uh, that Jamie read from earlier is the it's the best-selling book in the world it's a book that's changed countless people's lives I remember when I was in year 11 I flicked through uh, a book that talked about those on death row and so many of them had hope from this book The book, the Bible, and as we read through the Bible, this whole Bible is pointing to one thing. It's pointing to this story of Christ, and talking about how, talking about God and how much He loved us, and about this way that we can be forgiven, and this righteousness uh, that's being revealed, uh, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's what I want to come and talk about here today. And I think verse 22 gives a beautiful summary of it. It says that this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe. Now that's a beautiful statement and I want to break that up here today into its three sections. So we're going to quickly look at that. And it's firstly the righteousness of God. So that's what's being held out here. That's what if you would like is being offered here. It's not just forgiveness of sins, it is that, but it's so much more as well. It's the righteousness of God, that we can stand before him pure and clean, in his robes. The Bible talks about him clothing us with his righteousness. And that's an amazing thing, that God would offer us that. As we talked about, we're not good, we're bad. And yet God, out of love for us, would offer this great thing, his righteousness. So that's what is being offered. The question, though, how do we receive this offer? Again, the second part of this says, through faith in Jesus. Now, I think that's one of those sort of Sunday school responses, the classic Sunday school responses. Where it doesn't matter what the question is, the kid already has his hand up with the answer. And it's normally Jesus or God, and the question could be, what did you have for breakfast this morning? It's something that they don't really understand, they just know to throw out that statement. What is this through faith in Jesus? Well, that's the way that we can receive a salvation. And it's something that actually should be quite easy for us to understand. Because it's something we've all exercised, we've all practised exercising in faith in the last couple of hours. Because uh, as a friend of mine, I've heard it a few times, but a friend on a UBM team once said to me, and I could see that they meant it, they said to me, faith is like a chair. Now, if you know this illustration, you know where I'm going. If you don't, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But they said, faith is like a chair. Because before we all came in today, all these chairs were empty. And then each of us individually went up to the chair, we looked at it, we examined it, and we decided it was good. So what did we do? We sat on it. We took our feet off the floor, we became completely reliant on that chair, and we put ourselves into it. We had faith in that chair. And you know, it's the same when we talk about through faith in Jesus. It's putting our life, our eternity, putting all our hopes into what he has done into him and all that he did by coming to earth, all that he set out to do. And it's for us to put our faith in those actions of Christ, not in ourselves, not in the laws we have discussed earlier, not in all the things that uh, we could be doing and all the things we could be giving and all the things we have not done, but instead purely and simply in what Jesus already has done. And it's through putting our faith in that. Now, this week, I had uh, a very panicky call from a friend of mine. Uh, his name's Ben Huxford. A lot of you will know him. He's one of my best friends so I was growing up in school. And Ben Huxford was panicking because he's going to Ireland. And he's a bit scared of a prospect. He was wondering whether his car would get smashed in because it has an English number plate and various other things. But one of the things he was wondering about uh, was Stenner Ferries. Now, there's a Birkenhead to Belfast ferry that he'll be getting. Some people have been on it in this room. It's rather an adventure. It's an eight-hour ferry, ten hours if you're going at night. And it is, if you know the song, This Way, That Way, Forward and Backwards over the Irish Sea, it is very much This Way, That Way, forwards and Backwards over the Irish Sea. Uh, And Ben was a bit worried about this journey. Now, let's say Ben was on uh, this ferry. He will be on it rather soon. Uh, And it's on a particularly rocky day. And he gets up onto deck. You can go out and you can walk on the deck outside. Don't know why you'd want to do that, but you can. And let's say it flings him off into the sea. Well, it, it, to me, it's like this. If he gets flung off into the sea, he has no hope in himself, does he? If he we're we're going to assume he's out at sea at this point. If he can't see land, he's not going to be able to swim by himself. Hypothermia will get him before anything else, so he's limited on time anyway. But even if he wasn't, he probably couldn't swim that far. Uh, not judging his swimming capabilities, but probably <laughs> couldn't. Um, but let's say there's a lorry driver who notices that he's been thrown into the sea. That lorry driver comes down and he throws out a life ring. He throws out Ben's only hope. Now, how foolish would Ben be if he didn't take that life ring, if he didn't take that hope? Now, it's a, it's a rather uh, blunt expression, a no, rather blunt image for the gospel. But it's true, isn't it, that we too will never have hope in ourselves. And what Christ offers here, he offers the righteousness of God. He offers it through faith in Jesus. And similarly to Ben in that sea, getting washed this way, that way, forward and backwards. He has to take that life ring. That's his only hope. And yet so many of us will come up with excuses why today is not the day that we will take that hope. Maybe we're too young. Maybe we're too old. Maybe we're too busy. Maybe we'll do it later. Maybe it's not for us. Maybe we're not good enough. I don't know what your excuse is today. But you know, the Bible has here is talking about the offer that Christ makes to this world. And he did it out of love. And he made this offer to us. And yet how many of us ignore it? How many of us choose to actually try by ourselves in a hopeless endeavour, which just like the religions before, take us from not sure of heaven and leave us not sure of heaven? Because we're trusting in ourselves and we fail. Instead of trusting in the one who cannot fail. And then thirdly, who can receive the offer? Well it talks here about how the offer is to all who believe and on, uh, I'll read it actually, how it's to all and on all who believe. See it doesn't matter what our background is, it doesn't matter what we've done in our past, it doesn't matter all our failures, because actually this passage says it's to all and on all who will believe. Christ says in uh, John 6, he says, the one who comes to me I'll in no ways cast out. Talks about the one who actually comes to Christ. He's not going to get turned away. He's not going to get sent back. Because those who do have faith in Jesus, they will have this offer of Christ, of the righteousness of God. They will receive that. And that's why they can be sure of heaven. And that's an amazing thing that this is offered out to all of us because that means it's offered out to me and it's offered out to you as bad people. And that's something that can give us hope. That's something that can actually be life-changing for us. There are two descriptions of what Christ did to make that possible. And we're going to look at them in closing. Verse 23 to 26. I'm going to start with verse 22 at the end of verse 22. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot there. There's a lot that we could talk about there. I imagine Martin Lloyd-Jones could make many, many sermons out of that. Uh, But we're just going to look at it quickly. And we're going to look at two of the big words, two of the scarier words in that passage. Redemption, which I imagine quite a few people might know, and propitiation, which might be a bit harder. Redemption means to buy back. The idea of redeeming I think is beautifully summed up in a UBM story that we tell to the kids on the beach. Uh, I think Steve's told this one as well uh, in Kids Talks, it's about a boy who builds a boat. He builds this boat and he loves this boat, he spends ages crafting it and carefully designing it and then he puts it in the sea and occasionally it will come, go around and come back to him and then he'll put it back in and he'll watch and he'll enjoy his boat. One day the wind catches it and blows it off course and he can't find his boat anymore, he can't see it. Sad and very distraught, he walks round town, and a few days later, walking round town, he sees in a charity shop his very boat there in the window. He looks at it, it's got the crafts, it's got his finger marks in the paint, it's got it all, that's his boat. And he wants it back, goes into the charity shop, asks them, how much is this boat? It's mine, I'd like it back. They say, well, we can't give it to you, it's a mean charity. Uh, what you're going to have to do, you're going to have to pay the price for it. And so he spends all his time building up money, building up cash. He does all the jobs in his house, all the chores. He goes and gets a paper round. He does everything. Why? Because he wants that boat back. He knows he needs to pay the price to get that boat back. Now, it's different with with the story of Christ and us, but there's similarities as well. See, Christ, God made us. He made us, and he created us, and he loves us. And yet... We did wrong. Unlike that boat that by chance got blown out to sea, we chose to go away. We chose to go our own way. And there's a price that needs to be paid as a result. There's a punishment for all those wrong things that we've done before God. There's a price that needs to be paid. And that price that Christ paid on the cross, that is what we talk about as Christians. Because there on that Easter Friday that we, t- that we celebrate, on Good Friday, he suffers and he bleeds for a death that he didn't deserve, but for a death that we deserved You see, he paid for that price. He paid the price and redeemed us. He bought us back. Beautiful illustration of that is uh, C.S. Lewis when he talks about uh, how Aslan has to go and has to die so that Edmund could be bought back. That's a beautiful image of redemption. And that's something that Christ actually did for each person uh, who believed on him. And then beyond that is the word propitiation. This is a big word. Uh, It's a word that I, until a couple of years back, didn't even know the meaning of. I just read over it and assumed what it meant. But actually, propitiation is best described by a plane. Now, Ian likes his planes, so we've heard a fair bit about planes. But one plane in particular is Concord. This is a very famous plane because it can go, let me get it right, super sound, can go supersonic, supersonic. So it can go very fast is what that means, and it can move its nose as well. That's the other thing that's peculiar about it. Now, why does it move its nose? Two reasons. Firstly, so it can see the runway to land. It's going at high speeds, makes sense. Secondly, because it's going at high speeds, it's getting hit by a lot of air particles. There's a lot of heat on it. There's a lot of friction on it. It's taking a lot of hits. So the nose can move so that the nose is perfectly positioned to take the brunt of that impact. They called the nose the propitiator. Because the nose takes the punishment that the rest of the plane would otherwise be getting. It's the same here when we read about what Christ did for us. How Christ did not deserve that punishment on the cross, but yet he took that punishment in full. Because of him taking that punishment, that meant that we would, we would not have to. We could be forgiven justly. Our sins couldn't just be swept under the carpet. They had to be paid for by someone. And the Bible tells us that they'll either be paid for by us or they have been paid for by Christ. And so this is an amazing uh, story for us. It's something we should spend our time looking into because it's something we can find joy in. It's something that we can actually have assurance in because we're no longer reliant on ourselves if we're reliant upon that. We're reliant on a thing that's been done by somebody who cannot fail. And then finally, I want to talk quickly about the resurrection because that is another key reason that a lot of people, when they heard me talk about the gospel, they ask, great, it's great that you can have hope. It's great that you can have joy in this. But you know the resurrection is huge because that means that there's proof, that there's evidence that Christ can offer us life, that this, can be, that this is true because Christ died and he rose again. So we're going to someone who's alive, who offers life. And that's an amazing part of the gospel message that Jesus has been our propitiator, that Jesus has been our redeemer if we are Christians today. And as a result of that, we, that we're not good, like the agnostic, like the Buddhist that we talked about at the start, we can be forgiven. Not because we're better, no Christians, don't say that. But because we go into heaven, not because we're good, but because we're forgiven. I remember the first time an evangelist from Southport actually told me that. He said, heaven's not for good people, it's for bad people that's been forgiven. And that's an amazing truth for me and for you, because we know where we stand on whether we're good or bad. Now... I'd like to um, just encourage you uh, to think about this in summary. It's, the message has been quite simple. You've heard it all before. We're bad people. We can never do enough to get to heaven. It's clear from the Bible. It's clear from this passage as you read through it, hopefully, tonight. It talks about as well how Christ offers us a way that we can be forgiven uh, through what he has done. Uh, and it's serious stuff. I was challenged by someone in thinking... A lot of people here in this room uh, today, Roy and Helen in particular, will be, uh, maybe Kimberly as well, will be actually at homeless outreach tonight. Uh, they'll be with people who are at the bottom rungs of society. Uh, they've often been connected to drugs or various other things, even worse, or gangs and etc. But, you know, some people there, some people there have been forgiven by God. And there are many people are probably going to evangelical churches who are doing well for themselves, who are in comfortable livings. Um, who, let's say, they have two cars, they have four kids, five kids, six kids, whatever, and they're living the life. But actually, some of them might not know God, and they might be in our congregations today. I, I, somebody once challenged me on which would you rather be. Would you rather be the one who's living this comfortable life, or would you rather be the one who's got nothing but has Christ? And you know, if we, if we hesitate, if we think, oh, we'd rather be this Made the nice living one, actually what we've done there is we've not understood eternity or we've not understood forgiveness, but what we've definitely not understood is eternal forgiveness. Uh, because what the, man, what the man has who's got nothing but has Christ is far more in what he has in God. And that's something that we can rejoice in and be thankful in as Christians, uh, because if we know that hope, if we have that hope, that's something that can give us real joy that we read about in the Bible.